Good evening. It's good to be here with you all, as always. We'll be in Luke 12 tonight, so you can turn there if you'd like. As we're doing that, let me just uh, pray for us one more time as we get started here. Father God, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to understand it, God. Thank you for how clearly you speak to us in it, Lord. I just thank you for the great clarity um, that we find in your word, God. Lord, thank you for your love poured out for us um, through Christ on the cross. And God, I thank you that as we gather together like this, um, it's just an opportunity to enjoy the unity that you have wrought in Christ, God, the unity that we enjoy in this body. I pray that as we spend time in your word, God, that um, we'd be exercising that oneness of mind that we have in Christ, that we would just enjoy this time together, um, studying your word again as a body, Lord. I pray that you'd help each one of us to leave behind anything that there is to distract us tonight, God. Um, I pray that you'd help each one here to focus on your word. I pray that you'd help me to preach it, God. Um, I pray that anything that I say that's not of you, Lord, that you wouldn't allow that to be the focus, God, but that our focus collectively would be on your word and on everything that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And so I ask all of these things in his name. Amen. So like I said, we'll be in Luke 12. Um, and just as, as we get going here, let me just sort of set the stage for what we're going to see. I think the theme that really comes out as we work our way through this is focus. Um, So there's going to be a couple other topics that we're absolutely going to hit on as we move through Luke 12, but where we're going to start and really I think where we're going to finish is this idea of focus. And so before we get to our verses in Luke 12 proper, I just want to start by looking in a general sense at the focus of Jesus Christ, okay? So let me just give also a little outline, I guess. So we're going to start with the focus of Christ. As we come to Luke 12, we're going to have the opportunity to see Christ's focus in action there. That's going to lead us to an opportunity to really contrast this focus of Christ against a focus of a completely different sort. And then once we see that, um, we'll have some time to discuss this contrasting focus as well as Christ's response to it. And then finally, we'll review and we'll come to a close at that point. And so let's begin with our first point then, and it really is the context. Again, it's what I want to set the stage with for Luke 12, and it's this. Jesus Christ was, and really still is, laser-focused on his mission, okay? Jesus Christ was, and really still is, laser-focused on his mission. And there are two aspects, I guess you could say, of Christ's intense focus that I want to consider. Um, first, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Paul says that Christ came for a reason, and that reason was to save sinners. He did so by fulfilling God's law through his perfect life that he lived here on earth, and subsequently by dying in our place on the cross. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is what Paul said. Christ maintained his focus on this mission 
unwaveringly right through the end of his earthly life. It was just days before his death that John records in chapter 12 of his gospel these words from Christ. This is verse 27 of John 12. Christ said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus Christ came to even that dark hour of his death on the cross with a purpose. And the purpose, his focus, was to die in our place the death that we collectively deserve. In the book of Luke specifically, we get a glimpse at this focused from Christ um, in chapter 9, verse 51. It's just a few chapters prior to where we're going to be in chapter 12 tonight. And there Luke writes, When the days drew near for him, Christ, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Christ's face was set to go to Jerusalem, really to a particular hill, where he would die an agonizing death on the cross. This was his focus. He came to die in our place. But there's another aspect of Christ's focus that we can consider. You see, it's not as if Christ had nothing to do during the 33 years of life leading up to his death. While we have alluded in a very general sense um, that Christ fulfilled all of God's law during that time, he had a very specific ministry which he was dedicated to. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 42 says this, And when it was day, he, Christ, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so not only did Jesus have the mission of dying on the cross to save sinners, and that was his focus, purpose that he came from, but in the meantime, he had a related focus, I think we could say, which was to preach this good news to the world, to proclaim and to announce his arrival and really what it means for those who are lost in sin, um, really the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. As Christ said in John 18, while speaking to Pilate just prior to his crucifixion, he said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so Christ came to die, yes, but on his journey to the cross, Christ had a detailed itinerary, a detailed focus. He dedicated his time, his ministry, to bear witness to the eternal truth, the gospel, and to proclaim this good news about what his death would ultimately accomplish. And really, this focus of Christ, I think, is somewhere that we could remain camped for a long time. I mean, you could do a series of sermons on this, right? Um, And I do think we need to tie it all together with one sort of overarching aspect, okay, before we move on from it. So like we said, Christ was focused on the death, burial, and resurrection which awaited him on the cross. Um, Along the way, he was focused on his ministry of proclaiming the gospel, of basically proclaiming the truth about what that death would accomplish. And yet, there's a focus which I think we could say ties these two together, which arguably kind of summarizes the two of them. And it's this. Christ's focus, his eternal focus, was and is to do God the Father's will. That's really what it comes down to, right? 
Um, so I want you just to hear that theme rise out of a few verses. I'm going to read three kind of just rapidly. Uh, each one is Christ's own words, okay? And each one really shows that this is his overarching focus, that Christ's focus was and still is as he lives um, to do God the Father's will, all right? And so the first verse is this, John chapter 6, verse 38. Christ says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John twelve forty nine. then. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Hebrews 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so this is the image of Christ, which I think we need as we come to our text here in Luke 12. Christ traveled all over Israel and beyond during his time on earth, right? But he did not wander. He was on mission at all times. He was focused. He was as the soldier who is always in uniform. Um, And I speak only in the past tense because I'm referring to his earthly ministry, which is um, the first phase has been completed. Because the truth is that this focus from Christ on doing God the Father's will, it continues until today. It's an eternal truth. It's really a um, one of those triune truths that God has revealed about himself, that Christ is focused totally on doing God the Father's will. And so have Jesus set in your mind accordingly like this, um, whose face is set to Jerusalem, and yet, really, more truly, who looks past Jerusalem, we could say, to the Father's face, and who seeks to do his will, God the Father's will, rather than his own. This is the context that I want to set up for our section in Luke 12. Okay, so as we come more properly to our text in Luke 12 now, um, it's hard to say exactly where Christ is, geographically speaking. The most recent reference there in the book of Luke to a particular place um, was uh, in chapter 9, verse 10. Luke referred back to a city called Bethsaida. So this was a city along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Um, And honestly, for our context, just let it suffice to say that Jesus had been ministering along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, um, and now when we reach chapter 12, he's somewhere between there and Jerusalem, which is where he's journeying towards, right? In chapter 13, verse 22, just a little bit after where we're going to be, Luke summarizes well just kind of where Jesus is at in his ministry. He writes this, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So that's kind of the the stage of things that we're going to jump into, all right? And so they're traveling along the road to Jerusalem somewhere. But if you are picturing Jesus and a couple disciples just kind of, you know, walking along a quiet road, um, then that is not the picture that we're going to have in Luke 12 here. So let's go there now. Luke 12, verse 1. Luke writes, So many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And so this is the picture we need. This is where we're going to be in Luke 12. And so it is over the 
like unavoidable dull roar, I guess. Have you ever been in like a stadium with thousands of people, right? It's like a, it's a palpable, just kind of constant sound. And so that's sort of the context that Jesus is going to begin teaching in here in Luke 12. He's going to begin teaching his disciples. And as should be expected, Jesus' teaching, just like we kind of led in here with, is going to be laser focused, okay? His teaching is going to flow from that focus on things of eternal importance and really specifically on God the Father's will. And so what's going to happen is that through verses 1 through 12 of chapter 12, Jesus is going to urge his listeners to basically adopt this same eternal mindset that he has, all right? So I want to start reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12. Um, Keep in mind this focus of Christ, you know, hold that in your head. But really the goal is to get to verse 13, all right? So let's set the stage and just read through verses 1 through 12 there. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And what rich teaching this is from Jesus. Um, Chock full of truth and wisdom We could expound upon it for hours and hours, right? Another example where we could spend sermons upon sermons. Um, And it is truth, which is intended to elevate your view from the earthly, from the man-centered, to the heavenly God-centered, right? Jesus, you could say, is exhorting, he's pleading with his audience to basically join him in his focus. Focus on God, not on the things of this earth. And to the regenerated mind... For those of us who are in Christ here in the room, I think it's as though we are carried into heaven with him as our thoughts can't help but to respond to the words of our teacher. We hear the voice of our shepherd and we listen. His teaching is like a symphony almost where the notes rise higher and higher in a magnificent crescendo of sorts, okay? But with that musical analogy now with verse 13, I think it's as though Um, the record scratches, and it's interrupted, okay? Listen to verse 13, after that awesome, focused discourse from Christ. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I think that by God's sovereignty, there is a great contrast being made here. And we're going to dwell on it a little bit. Um, If you like to think in terms of an outline, then kind of everything we've done so far was sort of the introductory context, right? Just sort of setting the stage about focus. And now part one is really going to be this interruption that comes in verse 13, okay? This contrast to Christ's focus in action. And so in verses 1 through 12, Jesus was dealing with matters of eternal significance, of great weight. Um, Such gravity, even, was his message that he used physical death itself as an example of something lesser. Here again what he said in verse 4. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Nothing more that they can do. And I think it would almost be easy to think, nothing more that they can do. Jesus, once they have killed you, there's nothing left to be done. Death is the the absolute worst thing of all, right? If we could save just one life, then anything is worth it. But Christ says otherwise. He went on in verse 5. He said, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, oh, death? Is that what you're afraid of? Listen to me. I will tell you who you should be afraid of. I'll tell you who you should be concerned with. Concern yourselves with God, for whom death is only the beginning of the punishments at his disposal. He who has the authority to cast into hell, and who we are promised will do exactly that with all who ultimately deny his son. That's the tone of Christ's discourse in Luke 12. It's not that he's angry. It's not that he's just trying to distress people for no reason. No, because he spoke also of God's great love, right? Talked about how every hair on your head is numbered and you're of more value than the sparrows. But this message is heavy. It was of the utmost importance, right? It was of the utmost eternal focus. But then verse 13 again. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know who it is that speaks to Christ at this point. Um, they're not named. We know that they are one of the crowd, it says, um, which in this context is a distinction from being one of Christ's disciples, because you've got the disciples and then you've got the crowd and Jesus, right? Those are basically your characters here. Um, so we cannot say for certain whether they were listening to Christ speak as he said everything he said in verses 1 through 12. It's entirely possible that this person only just now pushed their way through the crowd and blurted out what we have in verse 13. But while we cannot say much about this person, either for better or worse, really, Christ knows all that he needs to know, right? It's just like it says in John chapter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus, knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so not only will Christ refuse to have anything to do with this person's demand in verse 13, but he'll actually proceed to use him as a case study in greed of what it looks like to have the wrong focus, you could say. Look briefly at Christ's response there in verse 14. Uh, We're not going to move on to consider it fully quite yet, But I just want you to hear the quality of it because it's going to apply to how we deal with verse 13. So verse 14 then, Christ's response. But he said to him, Man, 
Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so Christ, who knows what is in man, who knows what is in this man that comes to him in verse 13, um, shows us what's going on in this guy's heart, basically. Greed, covetousness. Christ shows us that this demand is not cut from the same cloth as Christ's discourse. This is a matter of the flesh interrupting matters of the spirit, you could say. Christ has his eternal focus, and now this one who comes in verse 13 shows us a focus of an entirely different kind, right? The contrast reminds me of what we read in Romans 8, starting in verse 5. There Paul writes this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so you have the mind that is set on the flesh, and then you have the mind that is set on God and on eternal matters, right? And I think that's a contrast that we're getting here as we transition from 12 to 13. You have Jesus with his eternal focus, and now you have this man that providentially is brought in um, with a focus of an entirely different sort. Okay, and so we ourselves can draw very few conclusions about this one who speaks to Christ in verse 13. But if we read Christ's estimation of the person back into it, we find a very pitiful condition indeed. Here is someone who really, though we don't know if they heard Christ's discourse or not, if they had, they could have cared less for it. They have only one concern, one focus which has gripped them. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Imagine once more the setting. The crowds are at such mob form that they're trampling one another, it said. And if you've ever been to like a concert, you kind of know how this goes, right? The closer you get to the front, the tighter it gets, too. And I have to imagine that at this time when there were no loudspeakers, there were no speakers at all, that the need and the desire to be close to the one who is speaking, such that they can hear you if you were to yell something out, man, they had to have been packed at the front, right? And so here is this one, though, who found a way, who muscled his way up to the front enough to blurt out what we have there in verse 13. And I just think it demonstrates the consuming focus that had to have been present in this one. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He yells, right? And again, picture it. Picture all the people there and how um, difficult it would even be to get to the front to do that. And so I want to consider for a moment how we can use this one who interrupts, their broken focus, basically, um, to examine our own hearts, right? The point isn't just to sit here and point fingers at that guy, um, but let's think about ourselves and how this applies. And so to do so, Listen to the admonition that Paul gives in Colossians chapter 3. He says this in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In verse 13 is really an illustration of what this does not look like. And we should be considering... In what ways are we in this same position as the one who interrupted? In what ways are we having our own focuses 
drawn earthward and inward um, by things such as money, things such as an inheritance or something like that. What is needed, really, is for us to be so in tune with Christ that his priorities become our priorities, right? As Christ has his eternal focus on doing God the Father's will, this really must be ours as well. At least that's the goal. We should be so consumed with Christ's priorities, with God's priorities, that to be consumed with something like an inheritance or amassing more and more money for ourselves, I think that should be recognizably ridiculous, right? When we transition from verse 12 to verse 13, you should feel the transition, right? You should be able to recognize the fact that the stuff Jesus is talking about in verses 1 through 12 is of a completely different sort than the matter this guy is bringing to the table in verse 13, right? If our priorities are lined up with Christ, I think we feel that. I think you feel the abruptness of that transition. Or again, at least I think we should. Here another similar admonition, um, again from Paul, this one in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He says there, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And this matter of the inheritance and similar matters is a great example of one such civilian pursuit, as Paul put it, right? That may be the sort of thing that a citizen of this world would understandably get bent out of shape over, right? And again, we don't even know the details. Maybe he's being cheated of an inheritance. Maybe it's really not due to him. We don't even know. Um, But that's something that, yeah, would be a big priority, a big issue, a big consuming focus, right? And someone who's a citizen of this world in their mind and heart. But it should not be something which is of that much concern for those of us who have a new citizenship, a heavenly citizenship. Okay, and please don't misunderstand something. I want to clarify one point. Um, I think it is very easy to hear exhortation like this um, and to almost just walk away and say, all right, so what Kevin said is that um, inheritances are bad and money is bad, so we should get rid of all of that, and and that was sort of the takeaway, right? But that's not the point at all. Um, The issue is that money is not bad, inheritances aren't bad, but for these to capture our focus, again, right, so just use that, for these to be the things which so hold our attention, I guess you could say, for these to be, to use our example here, so high on our priority list that we would even interrupt Christ's teaching to pursue them, um, that is a problem with eternal consequences, and we can say that confidently. I like verse 10 in Psalm 62. It says this, Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And one commentator I read basically had this to say, and it's that wording I'm really focusing on at the end. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He said this, Just as transient and temporal as riches are, so should be our thoughts of them, right? So it's not that we're never to give a thought to money. That would be foolish. But our heart must not be set on money any more than money is permanent, because it's not, right? Okay, so verse 13 again. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So we've got to take note of a couple further things here before we truly move on. And first is just how Christ is addressed. It says, Teacher, in most modern translations. Um, King James and a few others have it as master, okay? This man has come to Christ, and he addresses him at the start 
with a recognition that, yeah, okay, there's some level of authority here. There's some level of importance here. It's kind of, it reminded me, at least, of um, when Nicodemus comes to Christ in John chapter 3. You might remember from when we were there um, in the mornings. He said something very similar to that, right? I think Nicodemus used rabbi. And so it's a statement, what reminded me of that is that it's a statement which is true, right? It's a true statement. Christ is like a rabbi of sorts. He's a teacher, yeah. But it misses the mark so severely um, that I think it's tempting almost just to call it a lie, all right? And here's what I mean. I'll give you some examples. I think it almost feels like referring to the president of the United States merely as a government employee, okay? Or how's about referring to um, like a Bengal tiger as a cat? You know, if you're trying to tell someone there's a tiger coming, you said, oh yeah, there's a cat over there. Um, or referring to a great white shark as just like a fish, okay? Y- you get the idea. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, that's technically true, but it misses the true point so much that, again, it's almost just a lie. Because who is this that this man is addressing as teacher? This is God himself, the one and only. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It's uh, four verses here, but it's good. Starting in verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, excuse me, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so as you consider Jesus properly, okay, the way that Paul has laid out here in Colossians, hear verse 13 again. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What starts off with a token of at least nominal respect goes on to show that it's really nothing more than empty flattery. It's manipulative. It's self-serving. This man has not come even with a question. It's not even like he has a dilemma that he needs guidance with. He has a demand in a self-serving one. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And isn't this also just another opportunity for us to examine our own hearts? How out of place, how unfitting is it to come to Christ, to God himself, and to make a demand? It is really nothing short of absurd. It's insane. I think it demonstrates a total lack of understanding of who is being spoken to, and especially when you consider the nature of this demand. Um, This is he who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. You cannot tell God what to do. And to even attempt to do so, I'm going to suggest to you it shows an infinite underestimation of who's being addressed and a proportionate overestimation of who you are. The appropriate way to approach Christ, to approach God, as we have many examples in the Old Testament, is to do so trembling with your face on the ground. Now, don't get me wrong. We who are in Christ, we do have the awe-inspiring, kind of mind-blowing privilege of approaching God as Father, right? Um, We can come to him as a child with their father, and we can make requests. That's true. 
But even this privilege is only given on account of God's eternal grace and mercy. Um, We must never forget that. But again, recognize the absurdity of this man's approach in verse 13. And let us each examine our own hearts and make sure that there is no hint of this in our dealings with Christ. I think it could manifest itself in smaller ways, right? Sure, maybe you're not coming to him and demanding stuff like that, but just like, yeah, I don't know, looking at how, how, what do your prayers sound like, right? Is it a lot of Jesus do this for me, Jesus do that for me, or is it worshipful? Is it coming and bowing before Christ, and is it based on the sort of outline that Paul gave there in Colossians? Okay, so on to verse 14 then in our text. But he, Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? What a statement. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And this response from Christ is really what drew me to this passage originally. I just think it's fascinating for several reasons, and we're going to look at two of them, okay? And so the first is this. The first reason I think Christ's response is fascinating. I think that when these words strike our ears— I think there's almost a temptation to think that it comes across a bit rude, almost. Impolite, maybe. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's a rhetorical question. I think it almost sounds in league with, what does that have to do with me, right? And it may not strike us as proper. I think you could almost think, isn't Christ supposed to be loving, of course? How can it possibly be loving to respond to such genuine care as the man has demonstrated regarding this inheritance, right? For all we can say about his focus, it's genuine, you know? He means it. This is very important to him. How can it possibly be loving for Christ to respond with such dismissive words, really? And I think the only reason that we may have a bit of an issue hearing Christ responds this way is I think it reveals Um, To what extent have we begun to view love the way that the world does? Because here's what I mean. The world's view of love is 100% subjective. It's roughly equivalent to unconditional acceptance and support, right? The world says that if you want to love someone, then you just need to support them, um, accept them, and whatever it is that they think is right, whatever they think is important— If they think it's good, then you just got to get behind them, right? Because that's really what's most important. And honestly, to give you an example, nowhere do I think this train of thought has been more prominent, perhaps, than in the way that the world has attempted to infiltrate and influence the church's response to homosexuality and so-called gay marriage. The line of reasoning goes like this. The world says to the church, hey, you're a Christian, right? Well, then of course you know that as a Christian, you're supposed to be loving, okay? Well, haven't we explained to you that to love someone means to support them and accept them for whoever they are and whatever they want to do? And if you disagree with someone's path in life and if you try to dissuade them, whether, you, whether from pursuing a life of homosexuality or anything else, then the world would tell you that this is the definition of unloving. And so in Luke 12, for the one who interrupts Christ, again, it is clear that this inheritance is very important to them. It's not disingenuous. I think we can say that much. And I think the world would tell you that the most loving thing you could do for this person 
would be to supportively help them follow their heart, you know? This is what matters to them, and, and you just need to get behind them. And the world says this because for the world, love, just like everything else, is completely subjective. It's completely man-focused. And the reason for this is because the ultimate aspiration of sin, the very thing which is driving the world's ways, ultimately is to take the place of God, to be God. This is exactly what Satan said himself when he blazed this path, right? Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I, I, I. And thus, each one, as their own God, demands that they are the center and that they are the absolute reference for what is good, for what is proper. Really, we could say that the world follows the religion of self with tremendous zeal. And so it's no surprise then what a blasphemy it is considered in this context to question or to dismiss what someone else has prioritized, okay? What they have deemed good and right for themselves. But praise be to God that he does not love us this way. God does not share the role as the one and only God, thankfully. God shows us true love, and true love is not subjective. Rather, it is objective, with the true reference being God himself. And so when this man comes in Luke 12 with his inheritance woes, Christ shows what true love looks like in this context. He does not say, well, I mean, if this is, you know, what's most important to you, okay, then let's see what we can do about it. Instead, Christ sees that this man is being controlled by greed. He sees that if he were to give this man that which he is asking for, that really, that would be the absolute worst thing that he could do for this guy. And so Christ, as the true and skilled, um, like, spiritual physician, spiritual surgeon is kind of what I have in mind, he really begins an emergency operation right then and there. He sees that the problem would not be fixed, but rather worsened if he were to prescribe what the guy is asking for. And so Christ begins the difficult work of exposing this. Verse 14 again. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And so he lovingly refuses to have anything to do with the man's request. He knows that it's merely a distraction from the deeper issue um, of greed, and he's going to go on to address that more fully. But there's another reason that I find Christ's response so fascinating. So again, the first we just considered was that while initially it sounds dismissive, it sounds rude or out of place, that more truly it's filled with love, it's true love, right? And the second aspect of his response that I want to consider is that I really think there is almost a sense of judgment in it too, okay? So there's that aspect of love, and now I think there's also this aspect of judgment, and I'll explain that. So Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And here's the weird thing. The rhetorical question is set up to imply that Christ is neither judge nor arbitrator in the situation, okay? And again, in part, we can say that this is Christ refusing to be sidetracked from his eternal focus, right? We could say that this is him 
refusing to be distracted by worldly matters, um, basically refusing to get involved in something that maybe is a matter for the courts of the land, right? And I think these things are true, but I think there's still more going on here. And so as we've already proposed that Christ is going to lovingly do like an operation, like a spiritual surgery here, um, what I'm going to suggest is that this is really more of like a cadaver lab than a life-saving surgery, okay? Basically that the one whom Christ is going to operate on is already dead. He's a dead man walking. And so let me explain to you why I say this. So consider the man once more. We've already seen and we agree with Christ's assessment of greed, right? He says that there's greed, there's covetousness. He goes on to tell that whole parable that makes clear that's what he's really dealing with. But I want to ask you this. Is greed really the root issue at hand? Okay? Is greed really this guy's biggest root problem? And the answer is that it's not. The truth is that, first of all, here, let's kind of walk through it using the medical analogy. The man's demand for inheritance, right, when he comes with his interruption, that's like a symptom, we could say. It's like an outward manifestation. Greed. And so then, when Christ diagnoses that greed, right, it's almost like the greed itself is like a tumor. So the man comes, he has his symptom, Christ is kind of the spiritual doctor, he steps back and assesses the guy, he knows his heart, and he says, okay, I know what's going on here. This is greed, right? And the greed is kind of like a tumor, I'm going to tell you. But the thing with tumors is that they don't just appear out of nowhere. The thing with tumors is that they're caused by an underlying cancer. And the underlying cancer here, to step back into the story and out of the analogy, is sin. Beyond just greed specifically, this man's ultimate problem is sin. And the issue is that sin, much like cancer, can't always just be solved, well, with sin it never can be, by just removing these individual tumors, right? So fine, maybe the guy wouldn't be greedy anymore, but guess what? He still has all these other sins that are still a part of his life, right? Whether it's laziness or anger, whatever it is. And the thing with sin is that it goes right to the root of fallen humanity. To use the analogy again, it's like stage four cancer spread all throughout the person. And really, it's even worse than that. Because what we know from elsewhere in Scripture is that sin is really death itself. And so for a second here, I want to move away from the man in Luke 12, and I think we just need to think generally about this problem of sin for just a moment. We're going to go over to Ephesians 2 to do that, and you can turn there if you want. Um, So we're going to be right there in Ephesians 2, and Paul is going to address the state of humanity more generally in sin for us. So here is what he's going to say. Paul says there in Ephesians 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he says you were dead, not just sick, dead, in that you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so it is in this way that sin is really even worse than stage four cancer that I've kind of, um, you know, connected it to. It says death itself. And then Ephesians 2 verse 4, 
but, but, but what, right? There can't be a but there. Even in the case of stage four cancer, it's almost never medically solvable, right? It's a terminal illness at that point. There's nothing that can be done about it. And we've just established that with sin, it's even worse than that. That with sin, the spiritual death has already occurred. But hear what Paul goes on to say. I'm going to read all the way through. I don't have verse markers. I'm going to read until I stop reading. All right. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Wow. And so medically, we can't even solve truly terminal illnesses, but God is so powerful, so wonderful, so amazing, that even in the case of this infinitely greater problem, he has an infinitely greater solution. We've said that with sin— The issue is spiritual death. The issue is an absolutely corrupt nature. And guess what? God has the cure. Not just the ability to treat the symptoms, the cure. He provides new spiritual life, and he gives a new nature. And he does this through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That is how this cure is offered to the world. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He lived out that perfect submission to God the Father from start to finish, as we've already talked about. He fulfilled God's law. And then he died the death on the cross that we deserve. He took our place. And now it's through him that God offers a way to have new life, to be forgiven of our sins, and one day really to be with him eternally. So here's the thing, right? Even for those of us who know Christ, who are in Christ, We do still struggle with sin. To keep using the medical analogy, it's almost as if the moment we put our faith in Christ, you know, we're given new life or brought back from spiritual death. Um, And from that moment until we step into eternity, it's kind of like there is this constant process of tumor removal, right? He's going to continue to eradicate that cancer until we join him in heaven. Um, It's never ending here on this earth. That's sanctification, right? That's God's work making us more and more like Christ. But with that in mind, return now to the man who interrupted Christ in Luke 12. And here is the reason that I know he is dead in his sins, not merely struggling with sin, and the reason that this is really a cadaver lab, okay? And it's this. The man himself has told us that he has not accepted the cure. Jesus Christ, true faith in Christ as the Son of God, we just said, is the only cure for sin. And this man does not know Jesus Christ. The best he could do when addressing Christ was teacher. And even that we saw was just a weak attempt at manipulating Christ to get his own way. He doesn't truly know Christ as Savior, as the Son of God come to save the world. And this is really where I wanted to get back to. This is the point about Christ's response to him, right? The second aspect of it. When we consider this fact now, 
The fact that greed is not this man's root problem, right? That sin is, the cancer of sin is. You have to realize that Christ knows this. Christ knows full well that the man has not understood his true identity, Christ's true identity, even though he stands there right in front of him. Christ knows that this man is spiritually dead, that yeah, he's got this problem currently being manifested of greed, but that more ultimately, this guy is dead in his sin and has not accepted the cure in Christ standing right in front of him. And so when Christ says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? The reason I say that this is judgment of sorts is that Christ knows that this man thinks absolutely nothing of him. That in this man's eyes, he's just another teacher, um, hopefully one with enough clout to solve his inheritance dilemma. And Christ knows that this, this misunderstanding of Christ's identity, is the man's biggest problem. The man does not realize that Christ is the judge, that Christ is, in fact, the ultimate arbitrator as God himself. And yes, um, Jesus said in John 12 that he did not first come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's true. But Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, that one day Christ will judge the living and the dead. And so again, it's in a sort of judgment here in verse 14 that Christ leaves this man in his chosen error. To the one who interrupts, Christ's rhetorical question will really only seem to confirm his tragic error. It's just like Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son of God is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so what a tragedy that this man had his one hope of salvation standing there before him, literally in the flesh, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God the Father, the cure to his ultimate problem, and yet that in his pathetic state of sin, all he could see was an opportunity to get some money. He saw Jesus as nothing more than a solution to what ultimately is a pitifully unimportant worldly problem when considered in light of eternity. He was blinded, and like it said there in John 3, he loved darkness rather than light because his works were evil. And so this should be a terrifying reality, that as men pursue sin, like this man here in verse 14, eventually God in his sovereignty doesn't stop them. And there's an aspect of that in Christ's response to the man. So let's take a minute to review what we've seen as we close here. For starters, we considered Christ's eternal focus. Jesus Christ came to earth to live the perfect life and then to die on the cross to save sinners. He preached that truth throughout his entire life leading up to that death on the cross. And at the end of the day, we said that both of these priorities really flow from Christ's overarching ultimate focus, which is to do God the Father's will. So as we move through verses 1 through 12 of Luke 12, we had the chance to see this focus in action as he taught there. Jesus preached things of eternal significance, and he begged and he pleaded with his audience, and by extension even us here in the room, to adopt that same focus, that they too would deal with God rather than man. 
that they would lift their eyes from that which is merely earthly and temporal, like the inheritance here on the table in um, our text, and instead look to God and deal with matters of eternity. And so then verse 13 provided a well-timed contrast against this focus. The man who interrupted in verse 13 really showed us what it's like to not have this focus that Christ has. He was so gripped with this inheritance that in his eyes, even Christ himself was tragically reduced to a mere means to a personal end. So blinded by greed was this man that he could not see that the treasure he desperately needed was standing right in front of him. And so instead, he pursued that which would not last and ultimately would not satisfy anyways. And so then in Christ's response in verse 14, uh, we made several observations, two in particular. First, we said that Christ's response was loving, that there was true love in Christ's response, that rather than just to take the world's approach to love, which is to say, oh, I can see that, you know, this is very important to you, that you care about this very genuinely, and so we're going to make that the issue. No, thankfully, Christ shows true love. And he said, no, we're going to deal with what actually matters, regardless of what you have decided you think matters. And yet we also saw that there was an aspect of judgment in his response. We consider that the man's ultimate issue was not greed so much as the underlying cancer that it was merely a symptom of. And so praise be to God that in Christ we are offered a true and full cure for this cancer, this sin. That by faith in Christ, and only by faith in Christ, we are given new life and freedom from sin, even though, yes, we acknowledge that um, there's still a struggle with it until we're brought to God in glory. And yet this man did not recognize that cure that was standing right in front of him in Christ. And so in some ways, we said, Christ's response was such as what would play right into this guy's blindness. Um, The man saw Christ as neither true judge nor arbitrator, and Christ's rhetorical question left this man in his error. And so I think the theme which rises to the surface at the end of all of this is really exactly where we started at the beginning. Um, It's just that one word of focus. The point at the end of it all, again, is not that inheritances are evil. Um, It's not simply that, oh yeah, the man in verse 13, he he did a bad thing by bringing up something bad. You know, I'm not supposed to talk about inheritances, that's bad. No, but while not evil, the truth, the actual truth, is that these things are spiritually dangerous. They're spiritually dangerous because they are so tempting to our flesh that if we're not careful— they can so skew our focus as to pull us off course completely. You see an example of that with the guy there in the context. The reason Jesus says in Luke 18, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God is not because rich people are proportionately more wicked, right? Well, they just got like as much more sin as they do more money, and so that's why it's a lot harder for God to get them into heaven. No, that's not the point at all, right? The point is that as riches increase, so does proportionately the temptation, the opportunity, you could say, for that to become your consuming focus. Um, And I would like to say that in this context, nearly every person in this room, if you're in the United States of America, to varying degrees, you are rich. There is opportunity to be focused on what we are afforded here in this country rather than on eternal matters. And so when I initially had started this study, um, 
my intent had really been to get to verses 16 through 20, which obviously we're not going to. Um, but I would like to give the parable that Christ tells there in verses 16 through 20 just the final word. So listen to this tragic illustration, just one more tragic illustration, of what it really looks like to have the wrong focus, of how that plays out in the end. Um, and my prayer would be that God would use it in each of our hearts as we go just to consider um, are, are we in a similar position as the man in verse 13 or as the man in this parable here? So Luke 12, verses 16 through 20. And he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father God, God, I just thank you, Lord, for your great love. Your great love, God, that is on display in these verses, even just on display by the fact that we have the Bible to begin with, God. God, I thank you for the sobering warning that is given in these verses, Lord. First, as we consider just that contrast between what proper focus looks like as we consider Christ generally and then Christ's um, focus in action as he gave that message, but also, God, as we have the opportunity to consider um, what it looks like to not have that focus, God. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit within each one of us that you would show us in what ways uh, are we giving civilian pursuits a spot in our thought process that it is not owed, Lord? I pray that you'd show us in what areas we need to be focused less on things of this earth, Lord, and what ways we've been taken out by that, and that you would bring us, God, in line with Christ in that respect, that you would give us the proper focus, Lord, that we'd be focused on laying up treasure in heaven, um, where thieves cannot break in and where moth and rust do not destroy, rather than treasure here on earth, God, to our own eternal detriment. So again, Lord, I thank you for all these things. We praise you, God. We just thank you so much for everything that you do for us. And I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.